The letter of James uses a word in the text that we're going to be in this morning that is a little bit controversial depending on what side of the equation you're on. But I find it to be a very important word because it causes us to wrestle with its meaning. And anytime we have to wrestle with something and really think it through, I think it's a good thing for us. And so uh, James, in the text that we're in, as we're approaching the end of chapter one, we're in verse 26, James uses a word, the word religion. So religion has been uh, blamed for all the wars that we've ever experienced on the face of this earth. Religion has been credited for the charitable work that's happened around the globe. Religion has been the thing that many of us have left behind and some of us are still striving for. It's like the understanding of the word religion, it's kind of all over the map. So we're going to have to uh, seek to define this a little bit, but I'm going to challenge you to not just put your, your own understanding of, of religion uh, in your mind as you listen this morning, because I think James is going to make it uh, quite clear if I don't muddy it up for him as we work through this. Um, and, and what James is using religion for is what we would perhaps expect right from the get-go. It's those out, uh, those external performances, these acts of things like worship. You know, we know what that is. We come together corporately to worship. We just finished a portion of what could define worship. Uh, worship could also be, um, you know, our, our proclaiming our belief in the Lord out in the public square and, and those kinds of things. Uh, fasting is one of those examples of something that people uh, do as they approach their religion. And, and um, I intend to do more in 2018, a little more fasting maybe, uh, just by putting that you know, sweet roll down or that kind of thing. I want to fast on desserts for that moment or fast on seconds. That's what I'll do. I'll fast on seconds. But, um, but fasting is something that often people do to prove their devotion or their dedication to their religion or their God. Giving to the poor is certainly something that has gone part and parcel for, uh, with religious, um, uh, uh, institutions and, and churches and things. And so we can think up to a point about those external things because James isn't steering us too far off that course, but he wants to um, have us get a deeper meaning, a deeper application to this word. So hopefully we can discover that because apparently uh, a, a false religion or a false approach to religion was just as much a problem for the, for the church in the first century as it is for the church in our day and age. And so what I love about that is it puts us on level ground with, um, with, with people from the time that James was writing this letter to where we are now and saying, and it reminds us, you know, we're all just people and people fall very short of what God intended for us to do. And so this is a reminder that that's where we are. Religion for those of us in evangelical circles is a, is a bit of a um, contemptuous word. So when I say that we're in evangelical circles, many of you would know that that's the name of our church, that we are an evangelical church. But a lot of churches that don't have the word evangelical in their title are also evangelical churches. Um, evangelical means this is that we believe that God gave his word to us in written form, that it is the very word of God that was delivered to us through human instrumentation. And that as God breathed, that's God inspired. He, he meant 
to have written down what you and I read today. He meant to preserve it. He meant for us to apply it, that that word is alive, that it is applicable in 2017, now almost 2018, just as much as it was when it was written. And that this word expresses what God intends for his bride, which is the church to live by, to govern by and to obey So evangelicalism says we believe that God's word is true and real and applicable and we intend to follow it. It also prompts us to to share that word with those that don't believe. In evangelism, we share the word of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ that says Christ died to save sinners of which all of us are, I was going to say all of us are one. That There's teachers in the room that will help me fix my grammar on that. All of us are sinners, as the scripture tells us, as we were born in sin. Before we could even really get totally rebellious, we were already born in rebellion. And so the gospel tells us that Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice. That was God's plan. The people have wandered away from me. They have broken my law. They have offended me. Because I love them so much, I will send... I will send the connection that they need back to me. When I think of religion, as many of you probably do, what I think of is an effort. Religion is that thing that you and I are going to try to do, to work hard, to strive hard, to, for one, to try to impress God or try to at least not make him send us to hell. God, I want to, I want to do enough stuff. We picture the, the scales of justice. I want to do enough to tip the scales that even though I don't expect to be the best guy or gal in the world, I want to at least be good enough that you'll say, all right, I know you made some mistakes. Shucks. You can come in. We want that much. And we also wouldn't mind it if other people noticed that we weren't the worst person in the world too. That's when the comparisons to Hitler come out. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not Hitler. So we want to be seen as somebody who can kind of move the scales a little bit. You know, we'd, we always love to say I'm not perfect. When you hear somebody say, I know I'm not perfect, wait for the but. And then the but is going to be a litany of self-justification. I know I'm not perfect, but I do this, this, and this, or I didn't do this intentionally or whatever. So religion is our attempt to tip those scales so that God says, oh, okay, it's good enough. In our understanding of God's word, as evangelically minded Christians in our belief in God's word, we know that those scales will never tip in our favor enough for God to just say, ah, oh, good enough. You'll slide now. That because God is so perfectly holy in a way that we have never had an ounce of relationship to we have no idea what it means to be that pure spotless and sinful because like we said from the moment that we said wah wah we experience this gravitational pull to earth that is called our sin nature we have always been tainted with something that keeps us from the holiness of god and so because religion will never get rid of that we believe that a relationship had to be formed, a rescue had to be sent. And when I picture religion, I picture that, that, um, that fire escape outside the building. You know, I picture, for whatever reason, when I picture brick buildings, I think of New York City or something like that. But, you know, picture one of those buildings, you know, in the Bronx and the, 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 the ladder isn't going all the way to the ground. And I'm like, okay, is that safe to jump from? It looks like it's 
you know, still 20 feet off the ground, but they're not, and they're, they're made for all of that. But picture a ladder that doesn't come down low enough, and you and I are told to climb it. And we're going, okay, so for one, I got to jump from this sidewalk to this ladder, and I'm going to keep missing the lowest rung every single time. Well, that's what religion is. Religion is you and I jumping and doing one of these kind of like the cartoons, and we just can't get that bottom rung to even get started on our climb up to the to the roof, or metaphorically what we would say, to get to heaven. We can't even get started. Jesus became the extension ladder, the one that God said, I know you can't reach, so I'm sending it down to you. You're on the sidewalk, you're stuck there. I'm coming down, and then in faith, you're going to say, okay, now I'm going to grab the first rung and keep going up. And so that's what is the antidote to religion. So in evangelical circles, when we hear the word religion, we instantly think of it in a negative context. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't jump high enough. It doesn't get me on that ladder. It failed me. I used to be a religious person, and then I found Jesus. And that's the biblical way of looking at it. But I say all this to say James is going to use the word religion as though it's something to attain to. As, as though it's something for us to shoot for. Really what he means is something much deeper than just jumping and jumping and missing and missing. He means something much more. So let's see if we can take one verse. <laughs> We're getting to one verse this morning in James. I intended for two, but my experience in the first service said we're getting through one. And what's interesting about that is really verse one and verse two are two different sides of the same coin. So we're going to look at, I don't know, what do you guys like better, the head side of the coin or the tail side? But either way, we're only looking at one side of the coin this morning. All right, so let's just take our first phrase in verse 26. James says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, James is introducing a statement of self-measurement here. He's saying, if you think, you can almost hear the sarcasm in that, which I speak that language very, very well. I, it's my love language, you know, sarcasm is my love language. So I hear it. I'm like, okay, James, you got me. You're about ready to drop the bomb. Cause you said, oh, you think you're religious, do you? But this is really what he's saying. If anyone thinks himself to be religious. So that word thinks introduces a measurement. And, and if, and if he is the one thinking that he being you and me, then it is a, it is a statement of self measurement if you or i think that we're religious and then stop what i think uh, james is introducing i i can't really come up with a great word i don't like the the phrase i come up with so i'm going to over explain it i think what he's talking about is a self-determination and the reason why i don't like that phrase self-determination is you and i think self-determination is i'm going to get that job i'm going to you know finally get that girl or, you know, I'm going to, you know, um, I don't know, any kind of determination. I'm going to win the race or something. But I, I don't mean it like that. I really think that it's more of a self-evaluation, more of a self-determining of what's really acceptable in my life. So if I say, I think I did enough, I mean, I think with that first jump, I got a hold of that bottom rung. I think I nailed it. Even though everyone on the outside is like, you missed miserably. You fell on your face and your nose is bleeding and you think you nailed it. But this is what we as mankind do. 
We self-determine for ourselves the, own, the, uh, the standard that we need to reach, and then we tell ourselves what we need to tell ourselves to make us believe that we've reached that standard. So James is saying, if you think that you're religious, then we have to do some true measurement. Because once that self-determining value gets measured against the backdrop of eternity or against a greater measuring stick, everything has to change. You may have heard that phrase before that, that, that Jesus is the true yardstick that we're supposed to be measuring our greatness to because that's why the comparisons of Hitler come out because we love comparing ourselves to somebody like that. Because Hitler existed, we all are fine in our own thinking. But when God says, no, wait, I've got Jesus here for you to look at, and he's perfect and he's pure, and all of your actions pale in comparison to him, then we say, okay, maybe I am missing that first rung of the ladder. And this word think brings us back to something James said just a few verses before in verse 22. He says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who think they've done a good enough job and made it on their own or who delude themselves. Remember a couple, uh, a couple weeks back, we talked about our own ability to buy our own lie and how I was confessing to you that as a child, I had practiced a lie so long that I actually believed it. So I have my own self-proving here that this really is uh, uh, something that's possible. Tell yourself a lie long enough and you will start to believe it. So James is saying, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who are lying to themselves and then buying that lie hook, line, and sinker. So self-determination, this kind of phrase that I'm coming up with here, self-determination equals self-delusion based on what James is saying here. Once you and I become the judge of what is acceptable for all of eternity, what we are buying is the most costly and drastic lie that we could ever stumble into. So back in verse 26, James says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, we're back to self-deception here, this man's religion, okay, so he's going to use, hey, if we want to talk about religion, I'll talk to you about true religion. If you think you're religious, the religion that you think you're exercising is actually valued at nothing. It's worthless. There is no value to it. In the end, it has been deemed to have no value whatsoever. And so what we have a tendency to do before finding Christ and even sometimes living in that practice after finding Christ is that we spend our lives earning credit with ourselves, ignoring the satisfaction of the reward giver, which is ultimately proven to be pointless, worthless, even more strongly put, if you follow the scriptures, is, is proven to be death because it's separation from God. So what people should fear, what mankind should fear more than anything else, and we'll try to qualify this, but what we should fear more than anything else is spending our entire lives living for the satisfaction of our own laws. And I, and I, I want to use that word on purpose. We do set our own code of conduct. We do set our own level of satisfaction, our own laws, instead of having pursued what makes the real and eternal lawgiver happy. This may not equate in our, in our typical experience, but if, if somebody says, 
What makes God happy? You can respond with the Ten Commandments. As, as, as uh, thou shalt not, as they are, to put it lightly, there's a whole lot of don'ts in the Ten Commandments. But God introduced those commandments to his people at the right time to say, if you want to know where I'm coming from, this is what you need to do. And not only do you need to just kind of dance around the application of it, you need to nail it perfectly. If you want to put a smile on my face, you're not going to falter on any of these things. And then he introduces the list. And the list, as we paraphrase it, sounds like this. That you're to have no other gods before me. Very similar, but with some variation and differences. Is Don't go around carving little wooden images and empty vein little uh, dead small g gods or anything no idols don't use my name in vain which is more than just curse words but actually just dragging his name through the mud not showing it its proper respect not holding it in reverence honoring your father and mother which is you know my life verse for my kids just kidding one of my favorite passages i've memorized it since i was a parent um uh, uh don't kill do we need an explanation on that don't commit adultery don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. God lists all of those things. You want to make me happy? Do all these and do them perfectly. And to prove that they couldn't be done perfectly, because I really do believe that's kind of the key to the whole thing, is that as much as it reveals what God cares about and who he is, and we'll talk about that in a second, what it ultimately revealed is that you and I were never able to do all 10 of these perfectly. Pick three or four and say, have I ever done any of these perfectly? And to... to punctuate that jesus comes on the scene and provides more insight to the heart of these commandments so that when people think they can satisfy well i didn't murder anybody today he goes well if you're if you're guilty of hate you've murdered them in your heart and we're like man they've got me coming and going i can't figure out how to beat this system it was never going to be beaten by you and i when jesus was pressed on what the most important command is out of the list he says the first is to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is so close to it, love others as yourself. Now, Jesus wasn't just picking two of his favorites. He wasn't saying, well, if you want to know what uh, the important commandments are, you can, you can just focus on number two and seven. The other ones are there just for filler to kind of, because ten sounds better than two. So, you know, don't worry about those. He's not doing that. What, what he's doing is he's saying all of the list of laws will reveal to you that God cares about his worship above anything else. And he cares about our treatment of others. Secondly, so then if you go back to the list, you see how this starts to play out, because, again, the Ten Commandments are revealing the character or the nature of God, who he really is. And then they're secondly revealing what we should do towards others because of that. So that this becomes for God and for others. God's nature reveals in the Ten Commandments that he is to be worshipped above all other things. You see this in the commands that no other gods before me, no graven images or idols. Respect my name. Don't diminish my name and put it on par with anybody else's name. It is in the song we just sang, Jesus, there's no one beside you. Your name doesn't even belong in the mix. It's to be held in high esteem. This is who God is and this is what he cares about. 
And he says to keep the Sabbath. And so when we look at this list, we start to see that 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 God is uh, not going to be guilty of idolatry himself. Let me see if I can explain what this means in my my own puny little mind here for a second. Think about if God were to allow somebody or something else to get as much respect or attention as he gets. God would then be guilty of bowing down and worshiping another God. Because the nature of who God is, is he is the most high. There is no one above him. So God doesn't have some kind of ego problem as those in culture want to say today. Oh, God's got some ego because he's exclusive. God is exclusive. It is his very nature. There is no one beside him. There is no one above him. And so his commands reveal his nature. The commandments reveal that he is to be revered and worshipped and respected and set apart. But also God's heart leads us to show our love for him and how we treat others, beginning with how kids treat their parents, also continuing with the fact that we don't kill each other, we don't steal from one another, we're not lying to take advantage of you, we're not coveting or desiring something that you have that I don't have or anything like that. Instead, what we want to do is say, God, because you are holy and reverent and above all things, I'm also going to treat others as though I believe that. So Jesus said the most important commandment is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is so close to it, to love others more than yourself. If you and I continue to work in our religious efforts to do the things that we think are valuable, but they don't accomplish the two primary commands that jesus is laying out for us then our religion is going to be deemed worthless and so james is trying to warn us he's saying i don't want you to be confused i don't want you to buy your own lies please understand how easy it is for you to slip into this temptation and to start hearing your own voice to start believing your own valuations of things and say that's good enough I've done enough. James is saying if you slip into that, your religion is going to be empty. Your religion is going to have no value whatsoever. And he's told us that there's a couple of different ways to be deceived. Verse 22, those that hear the truth but don't do anything with it, they haven't put it into action. They've just absorbed it kind of like a mental exercise or coming to church makes me feel like I'm plugged into something in my community or it's bigger than me or something like that. But the heart penetrating life changing truth that God has employed from his scriptures isn't really allowed to make changes. And we go, well, I'll get around to it. That's what 2018 is for instead of doing with it now what God is putting in our hearts. That person is guilty of self-delusion. That person is guilty of buying their own lie and deceiving themselves. And then he also says, but the same person, the one who thinks they're religious, but doesn't control his own tongue, does not bridle his own tongue, is deceived. Now, uh, for me, I'm... I'm out of sorts this morning. I had to think about how I was going to say all this in the first service and stumbled through it and everything and even had a couple of questions afterwards and stuff. So I don't really know. This isn't in my notes or rehearsed or anything. So I just want you to know it's very important for me to let you know that as I preach this message from James and the whole context swirling around in my head 
about the fact that, you know, you and I are to be better listeners than we are speakers, that, that to, for someone to desire to be heard above anything else is really a selfish ambition that ends up blowing up in our face and proving that we're not who we say we are and all these kinds of things. Little did I know as I've been working my way through James, little did I know that um, my test would come in the smallest and probably most mundane uh, situations yesterday. I'm feeling all prepared for this. I've got my notes in place. I did a little review yesterday. I was feeling pretty excited. And, and then I, almost like it blindsides me, I totally fall flat on my face in direct opposition to everything I've been teaching to you. Now, so a couple of things. I know that, I know that you don't think that the pastor up here is perfect and all that kind of stuff. Um, and if you do see me afterwards, I have more examples to share with you than the one I'm going to. But, um, but at the same time, you do have probably a level of expectation that if I'm going to be up here and talk to you about something that we should all be doing, that probably I'll have tried it, had some success, and it doesn't you know, plague me as much as, as it should or something like that. Um, and I would say maybe for the most part that that kind of happens, but man, I I gained a new level of sympathy for not just saying the Bible says do this. So what's wrong, people? Go and do it. To how difficult it is to get out of our own way. And so um, all night I've been sweating this out, going, okay, I'm sta- I'm I'm sitting. <laughs> before the people of faith and i'm going to say listen more speak less don't make this about you don't have your own agenda all this kind of stuff and i and i in in about five seconds time yesterday i i totally unwrapped all of that in a conversation with my wife i say conversation if i review it i needed to be heard i ran over something she said totally misunderstood the situation confused it even more and because um my wife uh, respects me and is, uh, you know, a humble person. I mean, she doesn't like bite my head off and she doesn't fight back. She's like, Oh yeah, buddy. Well, if you're gonna, she kind of shuts down. And, um, the great thing about that is it leaves me to stew in my self-righteousness by myself in my own thinking for hours. And so I know this is probably like TMI. Everyone's like, all right, pastor, we don't need to know what goes on in the small household. But um, this isn't for sermon notes. This is just because if I don't tell you this, then I'm, I'm not authentically sharing with you what Scripture is telling us to do. And so um, I'm not trying to be relatable here, trying to be hip and all that kind of stuff. Um, I really um, came into this message this morning thinking I have no business. Now, we kind of think that every week, but I have no business talking to you about what um, James is trying to get us to say. Because I started paying the consequence of my own um, demand yesterday as I drove my wife to another side of the house with just a quick biting little thing I said. And, 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 and I don't say this to brag, but we don't have tension really in our marriage. And I, I really sympathize yesterday with some of you that do. Because I'm sitting there for hours going, okay, I'm in my corner, she's in hers. I have no willpower or no energy, so I think to break the ice, to confess I'm wrong. I'm just stuck. And she's probably feeling the same way. And the longer I'm stuck, I'm like, she's going to figure it out that I was right. <laughs> she's going to figure it out. She's going to... And, um, and, and I know better. See, that, this is the problem with knowing the Bible is as soon as I screw up, I know it. And I know what the fix is. 
But, but my confession and my sympathy in this is this, is that I walk around in the same bag of bones you do. And even though my mind knows the right thing to do, my heart's going, you don't need to give in. Don't give her an inch. Stew on this for a while. Feel it. Feel justified. But what the Holy Spirit does with that, the longer that that kind of marinates, is that guilt and that kind of warning light on your dashboard says, this isn't who you're supposed to be. This isn't what you represent to the outside world. This isn't what your kids need to see for an example. All that kind of stuff. And so you start fighting with the Lord. At first, your fight was with another. And then he's like, can't you just leave me alone? Can I enjoy this for a minute? Can I be right? And uh, that never works. And so you toss and turn all night thinking, how am I going to preach a sermon about something I don't know how to put in practice? So uh, when I said I, I'm, I'm kind of coming at this all out of sorts, it's because God said uh, to me through my, inact- through my poor actions, you can preach this all you want, but all of us, all of us have to squarely face this when, whenever we are convicted by our wrongful actions. We, we have to just man up or own up to the fact that we don't know how to make these relationships. We don't know how to represent a religion that is worth something apart from the, the inner working of Christ in our life. Why couldn't I yesterday? Because ever since I was that wow-wow little baby, I've been looking out for Brent. I practice that really, really well. Even if my wife were to get up here and say, no, he's a good husband, he's a good guy and everything. You see, I'm not Hitler. See? She never married Hitler, so she's going, he's a pretty good guy. But I know what's in my heart often comes out as ugly as anything Hitler would have ever done. Now, you might say, okay, Brent, you're being dramatic, okay? And really what I said wasn't like a curse word or anything like that, but I belittled her, I shut it down, I was frustrated with not being heard or understood, and I made it known. And that sent her away. And it sent me on an island of self-pity, which eventually turned into conviction. Now, if you're into Lifetime movies or Hallmark and you need the conclusion, I understand the ladies in the room are like, tell me, you, you fixed it. Tell me you got flowers. I didn't. I didn't have time because I had to come and do the work of the Lord this morning. Uh, Uh, no, in, in all honesty, seriously, I, I did have to confess and apologize. And just before first service, because I'm sitting there going, okay, I've done my part, but I still, you know, if it's not right, it's not right. And, uh, and fortunately, she sent me a message back, thanked me for the note. We're good. We're good. We fixed it. <sighs> so I, I thought I said that in the first service, and then a woman after the service, tell me you apologized. <laughs> so, yes, I definitely did. Okay, I say all that to say this. We, we opened up a, a verse a couple weeks back from Proverbs ten nineteen that says this. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips, James just told us, he who bridles his tongue is wise. So Proverbs is telling us that if we have this need to share a million words, chances are a fair amount of them are going to do some damage. So what I find very interesting about James' instruction that he who doesn't bridle his tongue is guilty of a worthless religion, he doesn't even say he who speaks about nasty things. 
or he who swears constantly, or he who speaks venom. He simply says he who doesn't control his tongue. And Proverbs seems to be saying, if you feel the need to share a lot of words, what if 75% of what you just said was actually on the mark, was actually true, was actually whatever, but you just couldn't stop? Chances are the other 25% is going to be undoing everything that you just started off with for that first 75%. This is the problem that we get ourselves in. We need to be heard. We need to have our opinions noted, all this kind of stuff. And James is saying that if you want a religion that starts to look valuable and doesn't look empty in vain, just control your tongue a little bit. Remember, he reminded us two ears, one mouth. That's the proportion in which we're to use those faculties. And this becomes the very difficult thing. And then yet we come to church and this is, this is what was killing me. I could have come and maybe pretended, hey, everything's fine. I'm a man of God. Everything's smooth. But God's going, hey, wait a second now. If you want your quote-unquote religion, that is what you claim on the outside to be true, and you're not backing it up because you didn't bridle your tongue, because you didn't control that massive horse that's full of muscle and full of power and everything that can be tamed, if that's the amazing thing about the, the giganticness of horses is that they can be tamed by this tiny little bit. James is going to tell us later in the letter, it's like steering around a big ship with a tiny little rudder, that our tongues have that much power. And if I just learn to control it, I'll be presenting to you and everyone else around this guy might actually believe what he says. So where I fail, where you fail in your attempts to bite your tongue, God's grace abounds even more and gives me and gives you an opportunity to figure this out and to do it better next time. The general principle or the general practice of not talking too much, it would seem, is a very godly attribute from scripture and so husbands all around the room just said see honey that's why i grunt because god said to stop talking now listen guys i can't let you off the hook especially after i just bared my soul to you i can't let you off the hook god didn't say cut your tongue out he said control it she needs you to talk once in a while amen ladies amen. all right about 40 ladies in here just got their point across the other one's like i'm not saying that so guys, you know, it, it is true. We have to be willing to engage, but control is, I, I envy just from a natural um, characteristic. I envy you quiet types, man. Do I wish I was that way? Some of you just have that demeanor of like, I got a million thoughts and I don't have the desire to share any one of them. I would, I want to be that I have three thoughts and I share them a million times. And so, uh, from someone that's never had any shortage of words, you can ask my mother, um, there is a, 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 a real attaining to on my, on my wish list for 2018 of learning how to bridle my tongue, to, to contain it, to, to take that, um, that massive, powerful animal and uh, keep it under control. And I, and I hope that for you, something is stirring around in your mind about this is what I need to be thinking about going into this next year. The Lord's got to get control of my tongue. Let me give you one example of how this has been very powerful in my life, and then we'll, we'll close our time. Remember, I said we're only looking at one side of the coin. That one side of the coin is what is worthless religion. 
Verse 27 picks it up as what is the religion that has value? What is the one that's actually deemed appropriate and valuable to the, uh, to the lawgiver? And uh, I, I have shared this story over the years once or twice or something, so pardon me if you've been around and you've heard this before, but it just is such a, a prominent thing in my mind. I remember being a teenager. My, my father died of cancer when I was, um, well, I think I was uh, 19 or something like 19 or 20. He was in his 40s. And uh, it was a very strange thing to process, but the school that I was going to allowed me to spend some time at home. Um, so I was with him for the last week and uh, had to get back to the school for some reason, drove my friend's car down to drop it off to him and head right back. In the time that I was gone, he passed. So when I saw him in the morning, he was in his hospital bed that we had positioned in the living room. By the time I got back, his bed was cleaned out and empty. And the rest of the family had had all of their emotional roller coaster that you go through kind of process to where they're now sitting around the table looking through photos and laughing. And I'm not there yet. You know, I just left in my mind 10 minutes ago. And, um, and, this is, and so um, <laughs> I get home. All that's going on. All I can think to do is go sit in the couch that stares at the empty bed. I've got nothing to say. I'm not crying. I'm not happy. I'm not anything. I'm just in shock. Uh, Another teenager comes by, and this is what astounds me, is maybe it was total knee-knocking fear, but it really came out as wisdom to me. This guy comes over as a close friend of mine, just had heard that my father passed, had heard I just arrived back from Boston, and comes in my house, kind of cuts through all of the laughter and all that other stuff, and just sits down next to me and says nothing for what felt like an hour. Now, I don't know if you remember being 19 or 20. Some of you are 19 or 20 in this room. But when I look back at being 19 or 20, a guy that already has a lot of words to share, shared them all, all the time. And I always feel like, man, if I could just go back and not be um, uh, so boisterous and all that kind of stuff. And this guy had the presence of mind to say, I've got nothing of wisdom to say. I'm not going to make anything up. I'm going to sit here and be confused with him. I'm going to sit here and stare at an empty bed, not making any sense of what we're witnessing. I still don't remember to this day how we even ended that time when he left. I know nothing afterwards other than the fact that he had the presence to come and sit and be a comfort. So what I think the Lord is saying to me as I reflect on this and I think about what James is talking about, about bridling our tongue, is so often if it's out of nerves or out of a desire to just want to do something, I just got to do something, we say so much. So often it's better to not say the wrong thing than to muster up how to say the right thing. Sometimes it's better to just shut our mouths <laughs> I think what James is cluing us in here is if we are going to be people that live out what we say we believe, all these great powerful truths in our music, we nod along to the right scriptures that we're familiar with and we're like, yeah, I believe this, I'm right. And James is like, well, how come you just can't bite your tongue then? And he's zeroing in on this because our tongue reveals so much of what's going on in our hearts just like mine did yesterday. So as we control our tongue, That horse is becoming tamed. And then people walk by that horse and say, what a beautiful animal. Wouldn't it be amazing if our speech as as children of God was so beautiful that other people would say like, I don't really know all that they claim to believe. I don't understand that whole Bible thing. All I know is that they seem to be disciplined, self-controlled people, and they really seem to be doing good for the others around them. That's really what James is getting at. 
You and I only do this by the power of Christ that lives within us. Left up to ourselves, we're going to trip all over ourselves. We're going to destroy the people around us. So, But for the grace of God, have we not destroyed everybody around us? Let's pray about these things going into this new year. Lord, give me a focus, God, to bridle my tongue. God, give us all the power and the grace and the, and the, the stamina, Lord, really to resist the temptations of the devil, to, to push back the temptations that come from our own flesh. Thank you, Lord, as James told us earlier in the chapter, not to, that you are not the one that sets us up for failure that you don't send bad gifts. Instead, you have sent for us a way of escape, that we can get out of these situations, that we can guard our tongues, that we can live a religion that is worth something to you, not just one of vanity or empty promotion. God, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord, for showing us so much grace in 2017. If we look back and think of all the things that we failed And yet we woke up this morning knowing that you're just as present with us. Just as much in love with us as ever before. If we think about it, Lord, we can't fathom it. Break our hearts for you and for those that you love. Help us to do these things, Lord, to show you and others that we are changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year.